Hey, it's Jackie with the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. And today I'm talking to Caitlin Shez about her new book, The Bible and the Ballot. Caitlin is a writer, speaker, and theologian. She's uh, written a book before called The Liturgy of Politics, as well as various articles that have appeared in the New York Times, Christianity Today, Sojourners, and such. She's currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. And what I like about Caitlin's book is she takes us through American history and shows us how the Bible has been used and misused in politics. Her sage-like guidance through our past is going to help us understand how to think better about our politics and theology today. And I think if we take her work seriously, we just might find ourselves able to walk into political conversations with those who differ with us with a more humble, less of, less divisive attitude. And so I don't know if you're like me, but I'm so not looking forward to a ramped up political season. And to do that, I've got to start now about how to think well about this upcoming election year. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome, Caitlin. Um, I've been wanting to get to talk to you for several years now, actually, ever since I knew that you headed out to Duke. Um, so you wrote this book, The Bible and the Ballot, uh, during a non-election year. That seems a little odd to me. Why now? What, what, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, my first book came out in 2020, so it was in an election year, and I think publishers often want to do that if it's a book about politics, get some attention, and it's in the headlines, right. And but with that book, what I learned, and I couldn't have written that book any earlier than I did it, but what I learned was, you know, people were often saying in churches, how do we fix the division here? How do we have better conversations? How do we have a better political theology? And doing that in like a few months before the election I have found to be so much more difficult than doing it a year out or even two years out or really kind of not having it so based around the election, but just saying we need to be the kind of people who can be in an election season well, and we're going to only become those kinds of people if we've been doing the work much further in advance. And so I both wanted this book to come out prior to an election year to give people time to hopefully read it in communities to say, let's spend some time learning some of this history. But also really practically, we have a discussion guide that not only works through some of the questions of the history in each chapter, but also really gives a, an example of scripture at the end and says, have a conversation amongst your group about how to interpret this passage that was mentioned in the chapter. And I want people to both have time to do that in advance of an election but also to do it in an environment that, yes, we're already kind of in it. Like the you know most recent GOP uh, debate already has happened. It's on social media. It's happening. But not so in the thick of it that our walls are up, that the temperature is high, that we really actually aren't in the conditions to have a good conversation, hopefully with yeah. a little bit of distance. And with the book, the goal of historical examples was also to give some of that distance to say, let's step back a little bit. Let's lower the temperature a little bit but still be asking and trying to answer some of the questions that will be really relevant when we're in a heat of the moment election conversation, when we're in a voting booth, when we're in a community meeting about some political issue, we've done that work a little bit in advance. Oh man, that is very, very wise. And I wanna to say to those of you out there listening, this book actually will help you get prepared for mm -hmm. 2024. We had such horrible, um, the church experienced an earthquake, I think, and multiple aftershocks. Yeah. Um, and we weren't prepared to yeah. have these conversations. And I think your book does a great job to help us get there. 
Um, one of the things you say in your book is, and I'm quoting you. Don't you love it when people quote you? <laughs> oh my gosh, I hope I got it right. Okay. For all the familiarity with the Bible, we are woefully ignorant about how and why we are using the Bible in politics. And then you go on to say, all of us have inherited theological traditions, reading habits, and political bias that shape how we read scripture. By the way, for many Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, that statement in and of itself is like, well, wait a minute, that's not true. I yeah. only, I, I have a clear reading of the Bible. Yeah. My pastor only reads from the Bible, right? So this is a loaded statement you're making here. I'll go on to read it. You say, many of us are shaped by our political hermeneutics that are th- than our theological tra- traditions. For many of us listening we don't know what the word hermeneutics means, mm. let alone mm-hmm. political hermeneutics. That is not something my children have ever raised. Not a, not, a, not a word that's ever been raised uh-huh. in my kitchen table. <laughs> so well, if, if people are going to read this book, they need to understand yeah. that term particularly. Help yes, us. yes. Um, so generally speaking, hermeneutics doesn't just isn't just about theology or about the Bible. It's about how we read texts in general. So I took a class last year at Duke in the in the literature department, and we spent a lot of time talking about hermeneutics in terms of like what what kind of rules are we using as we read a text? What things about the text matter most to us? Are we trying to figure out what the author originally meant? Are we seeing this word and connecting it to a larger tradition? What are kind of the the regular ways of reading that we have learned? And I think that is really one of the hardest things, especially like when I was in my first semester of seminary, or now that I'm around a lot of, I'm about to be in a classroom, you know, next week with a bunch of first year students at, at Duke Divinity School. That can be the hardest thing to realize is that you already have some rules of reading. You already have some assumptions about not just the right kind of rules for reading, but very, you know, prior to that is what text is this? Like, what kind of text is it? What does it mean? And how should it then be read? And one of my concerns with the book was even once we've gotten to that place where we realize, okay, I have a certain sense of, of how to read this thing. I've been taught that sometimes explicitly, like in a class in, in church or in seminary, here's the rules for reading. Sometimes you just pick it up over time. Right. I've realized people read these kinds of texts as if they're metaphors. But when we come to these things, we think it's history. And, and so I kind of pick up habits of doing that. That's really hard for people to grasp. But even if you've gotten to the place where, okay, I know I have certain habits and I want to have better ones. I want to learn the better rules for reading. What's difficult when it comes to scripture in our political lives is I think what's much more powerful than the rules of reading we think we have in our minds or maybe the rules for reading that our tradition has given us. Like we come from a particular theological tradition. Maybe you're Catholic or Protestant, even within Protestantism, you know, you're Baptist or you're Presbyterian or you're Methodist. You might have specific ways of reading the texts that come from your theological tradition. But much more powerful than that when it comes to some of these Bible verses that have been so important in our political lives, much more important is the way that we've learned to read them from our political context. So when I say political hermeneutics, I mean we as Americans read certain verses with a certain lens or set of rules or story. When we hear the phrase shining city on a hill, we have assumptions not only that that's about America, but a certain idea about what it means to be a shining city on a hill that is uniquely American. You know, a Christian in another time or another place gets to that place on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and doesn't bring with them all of this history and assumptions about that text. Or when we hear... You know, maybe you're in a Bible study at church and you get to the place where Jesus is asked whether he should pay taxes to Caesar. And he says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We don't just come to that with certain theological rules for reading a text like that or understanding what Jesus meant. We come to it in a place where over the last few years, that's become a really significant verse for thinking about our political lives. So we bring all of that experience and understanding and storytelling with us. And so what I wanted us to to really recognize is especially when it comes to a handful of verses that have been significant in our political lives, we're not coming as as blank slates. We're not coming as just plain readers of the text. We've been influenced as humans are meant to be. Like we, we exist that's in right. communities and are shaped that's by our right. communities. And that's not all bad. All of the biases and prejudices we bring are not always bad. But being able to articulate what they are is important for us to sift through. What am I bringing that is not helpful? And what am I bringing that is good? Right. And, and I love what you said, because I think that is a foundational truth that most of us, particularly those of us who've, a lot of my audience is either evangelical, comes out of evangelicalism, 
post-evangelical, whatever, I, I'm mm-hmm. kind of tired of all the terms. I'm getting too old for the terms. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to understand we come with bias. You yeah. can't come to the text without them. And I don't think God's weary or surprised mm-hmm. or shocked or goes, oh, my God, I didn't plan for this. How will right. I navigate people <laughs> who come with a cultural context? I mean, uh-huh. and, and you know, I, I'm about to go to Africa today and uh, with my husband. And he we've worked in Africa for over 20 years. And I, it was when we started working there, I realized, oh, I come to the Bible with an American ideology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't help but do it. Yeah. I'm American. I was shaped by my nation. I was shaped by my society. And when I'm in another country, I recognize they don't pick up the Bible and come to it the same way I do, whether that's in India or Israel or certain countries in Africa, you know. So it's helpful for us to realize, and this is what I think going back in history does. Kristen Dumez did that. Beth Ellison Barr did that. You're doing it here, helping us go back and go, okay, let's look at the historical context of these things and understand we're bringing some of our bias, Mm -hmm. our ideology to the text. Jesus isn't afraid of that. But there's wisdom in identifying it so that we can be, when we enter into these conversations, particularly heated conversations around politics, Mm -hmm. we can be aware of where those bias Mm -hmm. are. We can be aware, right? Like, okay, we may still land on the same way in that conversation, but how we do it with maybe a little more humility. So so city on the hill. Because I have heard that when I first became a Christian and moved here to Dallas, now I live in Austin, but when I moved to Dallas... I sat with a, a couple, and the man said to me immediately, well, don't you think we're the exceptionalist? The American is the exceptional country, and we're mm. sitting on the hill. And I never, heard, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I was like, mm. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since then, though, I have learned this is something we have bought into. How, yeah. did, how did that come about, and how, did, how has that shaped us? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, just very recently, like a week ago, we had the first debate for the the GOP primary election. And I was sitting waiting for Bible references because I wrote a book about the Bible and politics. And there there were a few. They weren't very exciting. But then at the very end, the moderator asked a question. Um, He said, you know, when Reagan made his pitch to the American people, he called America a shining city on a hill. You know, what will you do to kind of reclaim that that hope in America? And I like shot up because I was like, oh, this is my moment. Like this is the first. (laughs) Um, And it's telling, right, that the moderator said Reagan's pitch was America is a shining city on a hill. In 2016, Hillary Clinton said we're still Reagan's shining city on a hill. So he's kind of this is his phrase now. And people might be forgiven for forgetting that it is not initially his phrase. It was something that Jesus said. Um, But part of the reason that it's such a powerful image is because it not only is kind of taking biblical language, Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount, to the people of God, you will be like a shining city, or not a shining city, that was Reagan's, you will be like a city upon a hill. Um, And he says it in a context where just a few verses before that, he was saying, you know, blessed are the meek and the persecuted and the poor in spirit. So he clearly doesn't have this image that we now have of kind of economic prosperity, military might, Mm -hmm. some sense of moral kind of righteousness as well, but it's all bound up together with those other ideas. I think one of the reasons it's so powerful is not just kind of pulling this biblical language, but as you were just saying, there's this this history with it. So the the place that it starts in American history is in 1630. John Winthrop, who's the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, has this document, a model of Christian charity. There's a lot of lore around it. There's like a story that says he kind of preached it as a sermon, like on the ship on the way over. We don't think that's probably true, but it's a nice like story. And he gives this speech, supposedly, and in it, he calls this group of people going to what they thought is the new world, that they would be a city upon a hill. What's interesting is his document's really complicated. Like, he does some really not great things with the Bible. He ends with this reference to Deuteronomy 30, that God will bless you in the land he's given you to possess. God did not give them this land to possess, and there was great persecution and and killing of Native peoples in the pursuit of this land supposedly God gave them to possess. But earlier in the speech, he actually draws on much, you know, wider set of biblical texts to say, actually, God will judge us if we do not treat the stranger and the poor among us well. We have this obligation to do what the people of God were supposed to do in the Old Testament, to care for those that are vulnerable and poor. That's not the part of the story that kind of gets picked up later (laughs) by later politicians. And the speech in general gets kind of ignored for most of American history, partially because at that period, 
America was not the only country drawing on that language that way. That was just a period in history where biblical language was much more familiar to people. Right. And people were very interested in this idea of saying that their nation was had a unique covenant with God. America was not the only one doing that. But then later, JFK picks it up, not just to kind of, he's from Massachusetts, he wants to create this connection to this early, you know, forefather in the American civil religion, but also... It's at this point of great political and religious instability. People are looking for a story to tell about their country that goes back to the very beginning, that says that God has a special relationship with us, that says that we are the moral shining light. And that point, the moral shining light against atheistic communism during the Cold War, right. like where we have right. all these ideas about our prosperity that are bound up in our in our Christian religion and our righteousness. And then Reagan picks it up and just kind of takes it from there. And so many people use it after Reagan. Trump was the first president since Reagan to not talk about it because it just became such popular language. But what I think is important there is not just kind of the easy critique of this, which is to say, well, Jesus wasn't talking about America. That's important. <laughs> we use lots of verses to talk about America that we shouldn't. But right. I think the other point to think about, as you were saying about our like biases and prejudices we bring with us, when people read this passage, not only do they have this story about America that is so wedded to the verse, they bring it with them as they're reading Jesus's words. But I think even more perniciously, like more kind of under the surface and difficult for us to even realize is happening, is that when we have a sense of a shining city or a city on a hill, we bring our own standards for what goodness and righteousness look like. And we miss that in the context of the larger sermon, Jesus is not affirming our standards of righteousness and goodness and moral, you know, light to the nations, it's very different. And so that's another thing for us to think about with all passages, not just this one that has this historical significance. But when I hear descriptions of human flourishing in scripture, I am inevitably bringing my own definition of what that looks like with me. That's right. That's and right. I have to really do some work in community with people who are very different from me to help me discern where scripture actually is confronting my definition of flourishing and telling me that there's actually a, a different one and a better one than the one that I think I have. Yeah, that, that's beautifully said. One one of the things you mentioned uh, a bit ago was this. I you you, you mentioned Romans thirteen. Um, mm-hmm. Oh no, I'm I'm not there yet. Hold on, I want to back up. I'm going to get there. Um, Romans thirteen. This idea, and and I saw the tension in this in 2016, 2020. I've I've listened to the conversations. Um, there's a tension around what do we do with government. And specifically, authority. Do, do we mm-hmm. follow the government's authority or God's authority? Did God give, you know, evil government, if, if there's evil going on in the government, did God, like, say, hey, this is what I ordained for you, submit to it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these questions around government's authority. So you talk, you track the history of Romans 13, which, by the way, for those of you listening, what it says is let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So this creates a lot of tension for us. Um, um, so tell us, and, and, and this gets used mm-hmm. as a weapon, this verse. Tell us historically, you start, you start with the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. walking us through this. So we, so we have some context of how this has been used. Yes, um, I really, this was kind of the example that started my interest in doing the book this way, was Romans 13 is used so often, and especially in just the last few years in very contradictory ways, like it was used to support separating children and their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. It was used against um, churches that were defying COVID restrictions for masking or meeting regulations. And people, it was totally opposite people using, you know, the verse in those two instances. Um and what I wanted and, to do and was, it was used for Black Lives Matter. Yes, against Black it Lives was, Matter it was, protests. It was pulled out. We pulled it out of our wallet for that yes. one also. Yes. yes. Okay, keep going. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and interestingly, not used, you know, at the beginning of Obama's presidency as like, a, oh, yes, you must submit to the authority here. Um, so I wanted to have a conversation about how to interpret Romans 13 well, in part because way prior to writing this book, I did a lot of research in seminary about it. I became very passionate about interpreting it well. And I wanted to talk about it in the context of a particular political question. But I thought, if I come in and just talk about COVID restrictions or Black Lives Matter protests, the temperature's high, the walls are up. Right. What I wanted to do was find an example in history that was distanced enough from us that we could evaluate it with some more distance, but also still relevant to us. So for many Americans, the Revolutionary War is still significant in some way to our sense of identity and history. 
and I was not totally surprised to see this, but I was surprised how much it came up. That Romans 13 was like the favorite verse of loyalists during the Revolutionary War, which makes total sense if you think about it. They are right. the ones kind of trying to defend not just that the that the patriots should not be revolting, but also this kind of larger theology of authority. They were on the side of you submit to authority. You submit to the Church of England. You submit to the King of England. Um, and it was a helpful verse that could just kind of be pulled. It's very explicit. It's a short little passage. There you go. That's the end. And what I found is not only that the patriots in that period spent a lot of time trying to respond to this interpretation, trying to find better ways of articulating it. And they mostly did something that I actually think is is right, which is to say, let's couch this in a larger theology of authority across scripture. Don't cherry pick a single verse. One of their favorites that they did often cherry pick themselves was Acts 529, we must obey God rather than human beings. Human beings. And it morphed <laughs> into one of the favorite sayings of the revolution, which was, um, uh, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. <laughs> so you have two kind of supposedly contradictory approaches that are being used as if that's an entire political theology. And really, I think Romans 13 makes more sense if you're not only just saying, okay, well, both of these things are true. Romans 13 and Acts 529, we've got to find right. some way to reconcile them. But also Romans 13 comes in a context. So wait, within- let, me, let, let me pause, but keep, yeah. keep your thought going. For those listening, this is what she's saying about our bias of what, when we read the Bible, which, which verses get precedent, which ones do we stand on? Because what you just said is they're both true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but if I choose to focus on acts and I lose sight of Romans 13, I'm not doing integrity to the, to the whole of the text. Right. But this is what we do. We stand on one section. So we're trying to point out here that this is what we bring to the table. Where, what have you learned to pay attention to in Scripture? Yes. And what have you learned to not pay attention to in Scripture? That's what we're talking about, about partly about what we're talking yeah. about when it's, when we pick up the Bible to read. So go ahead. Sorry. Yes. Just, want, no, just wanted to bring that totally. back to the audience because you and I live in seminary world. And we <laughs> learn, in the, right? But they don't live there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which that is a good, like, there are a lot of theological and political issues that you could pit one verse against the other. And we've got right. to figure out not only our own motives for why we choose one, but then reconciling them is difficult. And so, like, how do, yes. what, what kind of work do you do towards that? One of the things that's important to me is, is the position that you are coming to at the end of looking at these verses one that makes sense of the whole canon from Genesis to Revelation? So this isn't my position only comes from the Gospels or only comes from the Old Testament or only comes from Revelation. That's not a good holistic political theology. But the other thing that's really important is actually Romans 13 comes in a context within Romans that's really important. That's right. (laughs) And especially the chapter before that is, you know, very clearly instruction for this new burgeoning religious community that is a minority and not only a minority within their context and persecuted within their context, but trying to figure out who they are now that they are not so ethnically and biologically bound as the people of God had been before. And so they're figuring out we live in, in different nations now. We don't have the same political goals that this that the nation of Israel did. We operate differently in the world. And so what does it look like for us to live under an authority that we're not just waiting to be rescued from? Like this is fine for us to live under a political authority, but we also ultimately serve God. So what does that look like? And in the context of that whole passage, Not only do you get this sense that part of what's going on is here are instructions for people who have no imagination for themselves holding political power. And so we are in such a different context for thinking about, you know, these are instructions not only these are instructions to people who are not in political power, but they also give a description of what good political power looks like, that it recognizes that it comes from God, that it rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. We are now the ones that that really should speak to of, are we fulfilling that? Are we actually following up with this good description of political authority? But the other thing that I think is so often missed, and this was talked about a lot in, in the revolutionary era and then in the civil war era as well, was part of what Paul is doing is this like surprisingly subversive thing the Roman imperial authorities had a vision for where their authority came from. And it was not just a political vision. Just like in our world, it's truly not just a political vision. It is a religious idea. We tell transcendent stories about the world and what's really wrong with the world and who's going to fix the world. And in their context, the story was we get our authority as human beings from the Roman gods. And there's a whole lore about what they're doing and our relationship to them and what we have to do to satisfy them. And Paul comes in and says, yes, your authority is legitimate because it comes from God, which in his context means it comes from Christ who you crucified, 
completely kind of subverting their sense of authority, really actually demoting them in a pretty significant sense, but then also saying to the people of God, your life in the world, in your community that involves political authorities is not separate from the fact that we are saying Jesus Christ is Lord. It's actually all bound up together. Your allegiance to Christ puts obligations on you for your larger community. Some biblical scholars think that when Paul says this strange teaching of, you know, the government is there to to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, something he could not have thought in kind of a basic, plain reading way. He knew that the government did not always reward people for doing good. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. Right. But what, what some biblical scholars think is happening is using really particular language that would have been familiar to people at the time to refer to this larger system of patronage that was common for people who had a lot of wealth or social power to use it for some kind of public service. We even see this today with philanthropy, like some very rich person builds this beautiful building for their city and it's named after them, right? They get some reward for the good that they have done. And so some biblical scholars think part of what Paul is saying is he's addressing the temptation that the early church would have had very understandably as a persecuted minority to turn entirely inward. There were wealthy people in the church, you know, hosting house churches. It could have been their thought to just take all of their resources and use them internally. Let's stay safe. And also let's isolate ourselves from the very sinful world around us. Let's not be tainted right. by idol worship, by the economic practices that are bound up with that. Let's just stay internal. And part of what I think Paul is saying is drawing back on language from Jeremiah 29 of seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have brought you. And you actually should be outward oriented. You should do the kinds of good works that get rewarded under this system that we live in. And that's a total reorientation from the passage. And even the fact that, you know, Romans 13 is kind of shorthand in the American context for obey the government, when the most straightforward command in Romans 13 is actually towards the end when it says pay your taxes, (laughs) which is not (laughs) what it's shorthand for in the American Christian context. But that really encapsulates too what Paul is saying. It's you contribute to the larger community. You are not isolated from this social system that you are in. You belong to it. You have obligations in it. And you should fulfill those obligations, including the wealthiest among you, contributing not just to the church, but to the larger world. Yeah. And I want to swing back to Jeremiah at the very end, because you mm-hmm. end your book, part of your, you end on that passage, which yeah. I thought, wow, that's a, I'd never even thought about Jer- Jeremiah 29 mm-hmm. and what it could do to inform us. But I want to back up just just I want to keep taking our audience through um, one more, I guess, two more actually historical um, ways that we've used and sometimes abused or misused the Bible in politics. Yeah, you talk a little bit about in your book the progressive era and mm-hmm. um, the social gospel hermeneutic, and this is still at play in in a lot of the conversations that I hear today surrounding politics. Um, explain to us what that is, and then you, you tie that or help us connect the dots to how that got to, or, or, or the thread that also leads to Christian nationalism, yeah. which is a word that, that's a hot button right now, right? Yes. Like everybody's yes. talking about what's Christian nationalism. So help our audience understand the social gospel progressive area, era and how, what that has to do with today, Christian nationalism. Yeah, I mean, help that's us such think a, well. Yes, that's such a good description <laughs> All in two too. Seconds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's such a good description too. Why I think the history is important. It helps us think differently about something like yes. Christian nationalism, which is the hot button thing right now. Um, you know, it's important to say that just in general, religion in America during the Progressive Era, the end of the 19th and early 20th century was always interested in social reform. There was this period that was both right. a period of great interest in kind of personal religion, as we've had kind of ebbing and flowing throughout our history, but also a real concern for social conditions. So Christians that we would consider part of the evangelical tradition now were involved in public hospitals, public schools, um, seeing, you know, workers able to unionize, seeing better working and housing conditions for people. And even the prohibition movement that we think of as kind of backwards wasn't really so much about alcohol as it was about caring for women and children who were harmed by alcoholic men. And so there's this great interest in how we can change society to better reflect not just general good principles, but very often a description of the kingdom of God in scripture. And so the theologians and the pastors in this era, on the good side, really were taking seriously what the prophets said about the poor, what Jesus said about the poor. They felt like those should be taken literally. If Jesus says, this is how you're supposed to treat the poor, it's like you're treating, this is how you're treating me. I'm going to take that very seriously and literally. 
Um, they also were influenced by a lot of theological developments, especially in Europe, that were not only kind of focusing more on practice than doctrine, but really often elevated the human person and said, actually, there's this good human spirit that we just need to tap into. If we just use our best resources, we can create the best society. Um, this was a larger theological idea about kind of the end times, too, that if we just spread the gospel, if we tell people how to be good people in their communities, we can create essentially the kingdom of God on earth before Jesus arrives. And so all of that's mixed up in there. It's important to note again, though, that like while we might look back and see theology that we don't want to hold to or that we might want to critique, in this period, even people with great theological disagreements were working together very often for these social goals. Even people that we might consider today more conservative or more liberal, they were working together to see the same kind of social goals fulfilled. What I think is important. Gosh, if, we, to, if we could just tap into them and say, right. hey, how'd you do that? Can you help us get there today? No, go ahead. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then, I mean, that division that eventually comes between those groups partially is rooted in this idea that you kind of have to pick one. You pick social reform or you pick evangelism. You pick social life or you pick the kind of interpersonal piety. And that's not a choice that we want to make or that we have to make, but that's how it felt in the conflict that, that came after that time. But what I think is important to see is this connection between Christian nationalism and the social gospel era is that, you know, the social gospel era flourishes in the beginning of the 20th century. And then you've got World War One, World War II, World War II Holocaust, depression. nuclear weapons, the Depression. You see the failure of the human spirit to create the good conditions that they wanted to see on Earth. You see evil in this really kind of visceral way that people were not yep. prepared for. You know what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know what happened in the Holocaust. People have much greater ability to do evil things to one another than maybe we had thought. And so a lot of theologians in that period look back at the social gospel era and not only say, you were overly optimistic, but they also say, you actually, even in the work you were trying to do, you were pretty paternalistic. It was mostly wealthy people doing this theology and sort of telling the poor, this is what is good for you, without really being mm. in close relationship with them. There wasn't a lot of attention to race or gender. So this is pre-civil rights movement. And right. yet people are saying, we've Christianized the nation. We've created heaven on earth, you know, and that was clearly not true for black Americans or other minorities. Or and so we Americans. can go back and see, yeah, and we can go back and see all of these great failures. What I think is is consistent from that movement to now that movement said we're going to Christianize the world. That's often the language that people will use today in kind of a Christian nationalist way, that our demand upon us from God is to Christianize our nation. And both of those share this good desire to see Christian convictions shape public life that I want to appreciate and affirm. I think the root failure of both of them is to miss that sin does not just exist in social structures, out in the world, in our opponents – but exists in ourselves and corrupts the work that we're trying to do. The social gospelers missed the fact that they themselves were affected by sin. Reinhold Niebuhr, like a early 20th, mid to 20th century theologian, his criticism of the social gospel was, you actually, in all of your optimism, in your belief that you are the white knight that will save the world, you're actually more dangerous than the people who are self-conscious about the fact that they're working off their own self-interest. <laughs> you think right, that you're right, bringing right. goodness to your community, but actually you're missing your own sinfulness, the ways that you actually can harm people, even with good intentions. Right, and the fact that you don't realize it. that makes yeah. you actually more dangerous. And I think the same thing could be said, not just for Christian nationalists today, but for all Christians, for us to think about how our desires to Christianize our communities for all of their good intentions will most often not only fail, but will often cause great harm to people if we are not aware that we ourselves are sinful, that our efforts will be corrupted. And then really, most importantly, what I think both of those groups missed was that acknowledgement of our own sinfulness and not just our sinfulness, but our finitude. Like we are just humans. We don't know everything. We can't be everywhere. Our perspective right. is limited. All of that together means actually my best efforts to bring Christian convictions to bear in my public life it requires other people. I can't do it by myself. I actually also need my non-Christian neighbors. They, by the common grace of God, see things in our community I don't see, right, have suggestions right, for right. solutions that I wouldn't think of. And so it's not just that the issue is, oh, I want to see my community more Christian. The issue is, I, I think that I'm the one that is get, receiving direct revelation from God and no one else should be involved in this discussion. And that's always caused not only us to miss significant things and make mistakes, but really to harm other people made in God's image. Yeah. 
Beautifully said. Yeah, I hope that the people out there listening to this are going, yes, that makes sense. That makes (laughs) sense. And if it does, I want to encourage you to go grab Caitlin's book because she takes us through a lot of the history, civil rights, small government, where we came up with that and how politics and, and the Bible have played into small government versus large government, the Cold War, Bush and Barack, which I love how you take that particular era and and help us think through um, this debate we have, whether we realize it or not, about whether the president's faith should be personal mm-hmm. or public. And that's coming to way right now with President Joe Biden yeah. and his views. He's a devout Catholic, which uh, then should be that his policy shouldn't be pro abortion and yet he he supports abortion rights and so we're conflicted and we don't even realize we're conflicted by that because we're trying to decide again and does a president's faith have can it can it be personal or does it also have to impact his his public and you you have so many of those conversations in there and so i want to encourage our audience to go get your book, The Bible and the Ballot. Where did they, we're not done yet, people. So don't, don't I'm not landing the plane. So, so as we <laughs> talked about preaching, but I just want to say, we can't get through all of these. She can't, we don't have time to talk about every single part of the history. Where, where can they find this book and your other book, by the way, because you wrote, you mentioned mm-hmm. it, The Liturgy of Politics, to kind of help them get started. Where do they find this? Yeah, you can buy both of them wherever you normally buy books. Um, if you go to CaitlinChess.com, I have links to both of them. And I also have some downloads for spiritual practices and prayers for an election season, which um, I wrote for 2020, but I think will be just as you know needed in 2024. Yes, 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 it will. And and for those of you listening, just to remind you, I um, we have a group of women and guys who, who dialogue about these conversations afterwards on uh, Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page and love to have you go there. I'll be posting all the links to her books, her website, all that stuff. But um, I want to I want to move us on to the Trump era. We have to get to, to, mm-hmm. to, to Trump. Um, I'd love to leave it in 2016 personally because it was such a divisive time in our history. But he's running again. Yeah. And um, we evangelicals and, and Christians at large are very divided. And I would even say gutted by this particular man's presidency and potential presidency. You say in your book, uh, Trump's presidency was marked by a confusing relationship with the Bible. And I would imagine many of us have the scene in our mind right now from that statement of when he walked to the, in in D.C., he walked to the the church and held up the Bible being guarded. And yeah, so... um, Talk to us a little bit about the passage. This is this is a little bit where Caesar give what what get, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's right and and we see a shift from Fodwell Junior to Senior to Junior and and where we led up how that led up to Trump because mm-hmm. we're all asking how, how on earth did we end up electing yeah. and ignoring the fact of moral issues um, in a president when we are the ones that have cried out against moral issues in our leadership so help help us understand yeah. this idea of separation between the spiritual and the political spheres Yes. I think one of the things that people often said in 2020, or actually, I mean, excuse me, in 2016, was Christianity and politics have gotten too wedded together. They're too connected. They need to be separated. And I was looking at it as someone who was a student at Liberty and heard Jerry Falwell Jr. talk, you know, enthusiastically about Trump. He was one of the earliest evangelical supporters of Trump. And I kept thinking, actually, I think the problem is that we think that these live in separate realms. And that's been true for a lot of our history. So Jerry Falwell Sr., you know, founder of the Moral Majority, really significant person in American evangelical political life, prior to his starting of the Moral Majority, gave a sermon on this passage where Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, and used it as a, as a reason for the job of the minister is not to be involved in political affairs. He specifically mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. and the marchers during the civil rights movement and said, that's not your job. A minister is not supposed to be involved in political affairs. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and a God what is God's. Sneaking in with that phrase, because he doesn't explicitly say this, but sort of sneaking in with that phrase, this idea that those are different realms, your obligations are totally different in them, and there's no overlap morally or theologically between the two of them. It's interesting then that his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, after the whole legacy of the moral majority, goes back to that same passage that Falwell Sr. used and uses it more explicitly. You'd think, right, Falwell said don't get involved in politics, but then he 
totally did that <laughs> for the rest of his right. career. <laughs> right. I actually think it's pretty consistent because part of what both Falwells did was say there's kind of a different set of rules for our political lives and our spiritual lives. And Junior would say this much more explicitly, partially because the the difficulty in describing a good defense of Trump required it more even than other past politicians had. And he even kind of used the language of two kingdoms. There's two kingdoms. There's the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. And the rules are separate in both of them. That language of two kingdoms comes from Martin Luther, who has a much more complicated political theology than, you know, Falwell actually articulated. But I think without getting into the weeds of that, this does describe how a lot of us have just learned to think. Yes, I want to be a Christian in politics. Yes, I want to be a Christian in public life. But I'm aware that when Jesus says, turn the other cheek... That's for my personal life. In my public life, and this is something that Falwell and Trump both either explicitly said or alluded to, you want someone that hits back. You want someone that fights for you. You want someone that plays by the rules of the world that just are the way they are, and you've got to learn to live with them. And so we have to have – this is why – so many people in this in in 2016 said, "I'm not electing a pastor. I'm not oh, electing a school mistake. teacher. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's a Sunday right. school teacher. I'm I that which was a way of basically saying the ethics of this person personally do not play a role in in my vote, which is both like a real departure from how evangelicals historically have talked about things, especially right. during the Clinton era. But I still think in a certain way, it's an exaggeration of something we've often we've often believed at the heart, which is that in the political realm, we don't actually think that the way of Jesus holds up. This is something my friend Michael Ware talks about a lot. Mm. We say we believe Jesus. We say we believe in the resurrection. But at the end of the day, we really think that what he did was kind of naive. Like he couldn't really have known <laughs> what we were dealing with in our political wow. lives. Yeah. And so we think we have to adopt a way other than Jesus's way when it comes to politics. Jesus's way is great for the church pew. It's not great for the voting booth. And and that is not only a, a really poor political theology, it's definitely not what Jesus was talking about. We have this terrible tendency to take a very strange thing, right? Jesus is given a difficult political question to respond to. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Posed by two groups that had a very different relationship to Caesar. So he knows that if he says yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the people that are more interested in kind of reviving the nation of Israel will be upset with him. Whereas if he says, no, don't do it, that's treason and he could get arrested for it. So he's in this terrible position. He gives a kind of strange, vague answer that kind of gets him out of the difficulty. He, he walks then, the line. <laughs> yes. And then we extrapolate this massive theology from this one one phrase when instead, I think part of what's missing is too often we just entirely lob the second half of it off. We say, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Not saying, and also give unto God what is God's, which if you're reading the whole of your Bible, you know that what is God's is everything. Everything. That's right. And that should relativize what we give to Caesars. I think Jesus really is saying, I'm not ignoring the question entirely. He could have been a radical that just said, yeah, throw off the chains of any authority. Don't pay your taxes. Caesar's not really in charge. But what Paul said in Romans 13 is is echoed here as well, or rather mm-hmm, Paul is mm-hmm. echoing Jesus, yes. of That authority is legitimate. I'm not going to say completely ignore it. I am going to say that your obligation there is relativized by your ultimate obligation to God. Just as it says in in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than human beings. If there is a conflict and there will come a place of conflict, your ultimate obligation is to God. And to me, that actually speaks much more to this kind of we don't want a Sunday school teacher. We don't want a pastor to say, actually, there does come a place in public life where the way of Jesus directly confronts the kind of political power that we want to seek, the way that things are going in terms of the way a candidate is acting, and we have to choose the way of Jesus over the way of the world when it comes to our political lives. But we have not often been trained to do that. We actually don't often have the spiritual formation resources to do that well. So it's not just about correctly interpreting this passage. It's also, have we spent years of our lives in our congregations becoming the kind of people who not only really believe that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, but our practice. Including politics and the government. Including politics, yeah. but also are practiced in the way of Jesus in public life. You're not going to automatically be good at it. You're going to have to really work in community to be the kind of people who can do that well. Yeah, I love that. That's beautifully said. Um, I want to read to you something you wrote in one of the last chapters of your book. For those of you following, it's on one Page 182, and it's a little bit of a long read, so everybody just hang on for a minute. But I just thought it was so powerful, and I Mm -hmm. thought I would love for you to 
comment a little bit about it. Um, You say this, in the aftermath of the two contentious elections in 2016 and 2020, Christians may have been tempted to turn away from political activity altogether. We may look at our own recent history and decide that political power is too corrupting, navigating policy issues is too decisive, divisive, and making decisions between poor candidate choices is too exhausting. And let me pause. The reason this statement spoke to me is because I think I might be there. Yeah. Um, There is something appealing, you say, about reading Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles as an excuse for withdrawal from the messy political world. We focus on building faithful families and homes and pray, pray for our leaders and leave it at that. But regardless of our political context or theological commitments, Jeremiah's words find their place within a larger story of scripture in which God's people are always oriented outward. From Abraham's call in Genesis 12:3 that says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you to Jeremiah's command to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. To the eschatological image of a redeemed city, God's concern has always been for all of creation. His people are given instructions toward that end, not toward self-preservation or isolation from the world. We should strive to build flourishing families and churches, but not at the expense of the commission God gave us at the beginning and never rescinded to care for all of creation. Genesis 1, 27, 28. That is powerful for me and mm-hmm. convicting because, and I suspect, I, I know from talking to a lot of people out there, they feel a little bit like I do, exhausted, want to bury yeah. our heads, particularly with this one. I, I just sat with a man last night at my house for dinner and he said, I just don't like either of the candidates. Could mm-hmm. somebody, I'm exhausted because I don't, yeah. all of that. So I want to swing us back to, you mentioned Jeremiah 29 before. Mm-hmm. What about that passage are you talking to us about, about how to stay outward oriented? Yeah. What, I mean, what I, does Jeremiah say to us? I think it's important that Jeremiah's words are a good encapsulation of something that is true throughout scripture. I mean, like you just read, this is the orientation of the people of God from the very beginning through the That's redemption right. of all creation to seek the flourishing of their community that they're in. What's so poignant about Jeremiah is that that sounds really great if you're in the Garden of Eden. It sounds really great in, like, the redeemed city of God. (laughs) It doesn't sound great when you are captive in exile, both because God has done this, because you have have worshipped idols, you've mistreated people made in God's image. This is a punishment for your own actions. But also, you are captive by particular people that are doing wrong. Like, you are totally justified in feeling in conflict with them and feeling like what you should be doing is fighting back or hunkering down and just saying, look, these are the, this is the situation we're in. We've just got to make it through. We don't need to, right, to get right. involved in the larger community. And so I think it not only gives us this different way than either of those options, the culture war or the isolation, but it also pairs two really important things. You do need to build flourishing communities. You need to build houses and plant gardens. You need to, yep, um, it says yep. marry and have sons and daughters. You need to build a flourishing community. You also need to seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which God has brought you. And both of those have been used since the very beginning of the church. I mean, Augustine uses this in his giant City of God book as a picture for all Christian life under the conditions of earthly rule and God's rule. This is the instruction for you. And I think what's really important, too, about that language is it's not change the world language. Jeremiah doesn't tell Mm. them, fix everything transform the place that you're in and make it exactly how God would have it to be, which is often how we talk about politics in the American evangelical context. We've got Mm. to change the world. We've got to take over Mm. Washington. We've got to. And what I hope that that can say to people who are exhausted, very legitimately exhausted, is that there is a different way to fulfill this obligation to care for the flourishing of your community, to be politically involved than just consuming social media, consuming um, cable news, thinking about national candidates, obsessing over which can- which party to be a part of or which candidate to vote for for the president. And that other way is spending time in your immediate community with people that are different from you, showing up to a city council meeting that has very 
boring regulations on the table, but they yes. affect the vulnerable people in your communities. They might not affect you. It might not affect you what judges get elected in your very local area. You might never show up in their courtroom, but some vulnerable person in your community will. You could spend the time to do just bare minimum research on those people to figure out who to vote for. Those much smaller, much more local things not only fit better the description of what Jeremiah is saying, plant gardens and build houses and seek the peace and prosperity. Pray right. to God for it. I mean, you could start with that. Pray to God for the energy to do this. Pray to God for the love of your neighbors that could motivate the work that you're doing. And then maybe do take a break from the national media stuff. It is exhausting and it's intended to exhaust you and to make you anxious and fearful. Maybe you need to take a break from that for a while. And in mm. God's economy, you bringing food to your next door neighbor who is different than you, you showing up to a city council meeting, you voting in a local election for a judge means so much more in the grand scheme of God's economy than you selling your soul to make some big national policy pass. And that's often the vision that we have been given. And it's not the only way for us to engage. Yeah, yeah. that's beautifully said. I think I'm going to end on that because my question was, give us hope. And you just did. You oh, gave good. some very practical things to do. I want to encourage those of you out there to go buy this book, The Bible and the Ballot, because we do need to do the spiritual practice um, ahead of time. Yeah. And, and we're probably already behind it, actually. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but we can get started. And I think this is a very practical book. It helps us think about the long trajectory of ways we've used the Bible um, in our politics, how it's been used well, how it's been misused. It helps us to do this in community. And that's what I really, really want to encourage our audience to do is get the book, use it in community, think in community. Um, Caitlin, thank you for your time and your mind, by the way. I always say Mm -hmm. to my, I just, because the mind, you spend a lot of time thinking and you know what? I don't want to take that for granted. As Dr. Haddon Robinson said to me one time, thinking is hard work. And you're doing the hard work and helping mm-hmm. us in, uh, Christians figure out how do we merge together something that is merged anyway, which yeah. is our theology and our politics. And again, remind them where they can find you to like learn more about your work, mm-hmm. hear your voice and your thoughts. Where can they find you? Yeah, you can go to CaitlinChess.com or you can unfortunately find me a lot on Twitter and Instagram, um, but any of those places are good. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you leave this conversation with some tools that help you engage in the conversations that you're going to have here leading up to 2024 about the Bible and politics and our sweet, sweet Jesus. Mm-hmm. See you next time. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.